right, well, so we're coming towards an end of our James series here, and we're kind of bridging between two chapters. Uh, we're going to go uh, chapter 4, verse 13, through chapter 5, verse 6 today. And really, these are a continuation of where we've been, but it's this idea that, that faith leads you to this trust in God, uh, no matter what kind of trust, no matter how much it doesn't make sense or how much you feel like you're forgotten or abandoned or going through hard times, God is with you and God is trustworthy. Now the problem with this is that we are naturally a very distrusting people because we've all had those experiences which causes us to doubt others. So I'm just going to take a quick poll here. In a moment, I'll ask you to raise your hand if any of these things apply to you. But if anyone has ever lied to you, has, if anyone's ever let you down in some way by breaking a promise, if anyone has ever forgotten about you, or if anyone has ever taken advantage of you, raise your hand. Okay, I think every hand was raised, and probably for all five of those things, right? We've been burned by people, and we hurt each other, so naturally we carry this skepticism of others, especially people you don't know. And unfortunately, we can carry that same skepticism with God, because we can never fully know him. The more we know him, the more we know we can trust him. But there, there, there takes this moment of placing your trust in someone you don't fully know, and we understand that trust becomes a discipline. You have to work on trust, especially, as I said, when you don't understand or you want something else or life becomes difficult. But God has a good and perfect will above our own. He might call us to do extraordinarily difficult or uncomfortable or confusing things, but we can trust him through it all. But a lot of times we don't want to. There's a story of a man who was walking by the Grand Canyon, and he lost his footing and he fell over the side of the cliff. And miraculously, he held on to a branch on his way down, and he called up and said, help, help, is anyone up there? And he heard a voice and saying, yes, I am here for you. He says, I need you to save me. Who is this? He said, this is God. I'm here to save you. Okay, God, just tell me what to do. And God said, I need you to let go of the branch. And so he said, is anyone else up there? <laughs> we can all reflect at that, right? God calls us to do things that don't make sense, but we have to take the step of faith and trust in who he is. Trust is hard. And unfortunately, it's, it's no different with God at times. But we have to let go of our own understandings and our own desires and place our trust in him. So we're going to start... We're going to break this kind of in two spots today. We're going to start with James 4 and finish out those verses. Verses 13 through 17. And James writes this. Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city. Spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. 
If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. Now a little bit about the premise here to help us understand uh, what James is referring to. These people who travel here or there, this is in verse 13, and going to this city and spending some time there and carrying on business and making money. He's speaking specifically to a type of trader at, at this time, a traveling tradesperson. And there's a lot of ways you could make money at this time, and all of them carried some risk. But if you were a trader and you knew the subject well, you would know exactly where to go to trade these items, where salt was the most valuable, or spices, or oils, or all those things. And you could plan these trips often years long, in which you knew without a shadow of a doubt that you would come out ahead and make money. And about the only risk was maybe getting robbed along the way. So he's speaking to these kinds of people, these, these traveling tradesmen. And so just another poll here, uh, who here is a traveling tradesman? Nobody, really? Okay, so I guess this doesn't apply to us. We could, no, there's principles here that we can learn from this, right? And speaking to anyone who kind of has this planned and this programmed life where you have planned out the next 10, 20 years of your life, but you forgot to ask one important question throughout all of this. What does God want for me? And he's addressing people who are totally self-reliant, who are not trusting in God's will, but in their own understandings. And this is the foundation of our faith. Many of you probably have this memorized from Proverbs 3, that you're to trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. And in all of your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Don't misplace your trust. Trust in God first and his good and perfect will. And so we see these principles I'm going to lay out. Again, this applies to all of us. The first principle is in verse 14. That we have to understand that God himself is the one who is sovereign over our life and our death. And we're reminded of something somewhat sobering here in verse 14. That you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. That our life is like a, a mist that appears for a little while and then it vanishes. We get this disillusion that we are somehow in control of our lives. And yes, we do have calls to action. We do have responsibilities. We do need to plan. But at the end of the day, God is sovereign over your life and your death. And the hard truth that we need to understand is that not one of us here today is guaranteed to rest our heads on our pillow tonight. Life is fragile. And that's not meant to scare you or, or cause you anxiety, but to sober you into reality. That God is sovereign and his will is perfect. In Psalm 90, we read this prayer that God would teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. And when you understand that God is sovereign over life and death, you understand that every day you are alive is a gift, and it is on purpose, and you have purpose in that day. We are not to throw away today planning on tomorrow. 
God has something for you to do now. And that's the eternal perspective we carry when we trust in God, is that our lives are very short in relation to eternity. We are here for a blink of an eye. And eternity is forever. Now, if you are resistant to God's will now in your short life, and you want to go to heaven, I have some bad news for you. In heaven, only God's will is done. Nobody says no to God in heaven. And so if you want to go to heaven, then start practicing now. Be obedient to God's will. Because in heaven, only God's will is done. Now it's said, we have this worldly perspective of YOLO, right? You only live once, just kind of live in the moment. But the Christian understands that you actually live every day. You only die once. And when you go to eternity, you fulfill God's will in everything you do. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. So that's the principle we all understand. Know that God is in control of your life and he has a plan and a purpose for you. And the second is this. Always seek God's will above your own desires. And this is spelled out in verses 15 and 16. He reads, instead, and this is instead of you kind of programming your life over your own understanding and everything you want to do, instead you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is written, you boast in your arrogant schemes, and all such boasting is evil. Seek God's will above your own desires. And the true extent of Christian maturity is when your desires and God's will become one in the same. Now, how do we seek God's will in our life? That's a really tough question, right? And I think there's kind of two parts we have to break down here, is that there's God's general will for all people. And this is seen in his commandments. It's seen in his character and his example. So if you have a desire to do something and it involves things like lying or stealing or killing or sexual sin or having idols in your life, or any of those things. If that's your desire, I mean, you should pray about those things, but you don't need to pray if that's God's will. It's pretty clear that it's not. You have to filter everything through that lens first. But then specific things. What kind of job should I have? Who should I marry? Where should I live? What kind of ministry should I be involved in? What kind of conversations should I be having? Those are very specific things that you need to pray about. And you have to sort these things out through prayer. And Jesus modeled prayer for us in that way in the Lord's Prayer, that we are to pray, God, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And as we read, in heaven, God's will is done. No obstacles for that. And so we turn to this exercise of prayer to decide what we are to do. And oftentimes we can turn prayer into this exercise of trying to convince God to do what we want to do. We see the true benefit of prayer here as we seek God's will above our own desires. The benefit of prayer is not to change God's mind to our desires, but to conform our heart according to his will. And prayer is this deeply, trans, a deeply transformational 
activity that changes your hearts, your attitudes, your perspective, and ultimately leads you to action. And that's the last biblical principle we see here out of verse 17 that applies to all of us. Is that we need to know the important difference between knowing God's will and doing God's will. As he reads, writes in verse 17, If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is sin for them. It's sin to not do God's will if you know what God's will is. Now, we often think of sin as doing the things we're not supposed to do. But here it's saying sin is also not doing the things you know you're supposed to do. And we call that the sin of omission. And this displeases God just as much as the sins of commission. Because both of them are a blatant act against his will. God calls us into action. And sometimes that action can be uncomfortable. It can be stretching. It can be challenging. And you can say, eh, maybe not. And all you're really doing is transferring that burden to someone else, but you're also sinning against God himself. The reality is God doesn't require our obedience for his will to be done. His will is done either way, but it is for our benefit to be obedient to his will. You guys remember a guy by the name of Jonah? God revealed to him very specifically what he was to do. He was to go to Nineveh, is to talk to the people there about God, and Jonah said, eh, no thanks. He ended up in Nineveh, though. He was swallowed by the large fish and spit out on its shore, and then Jonah said, maybe I will do what God called me to do. Obedience to his will is for our good, because if you love God's will, you'll be called into action. We have to trust in God's perfect will, that he is sovereign over our life, that we seek his will in everything we plan, and then we do it. Trust in him above ourselves. Now, the second portion of this text, which we'll go through somewhat quickly here, is talking about his perfect provision, that he provides everything we need. Let's read that part here, uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted, and moths, and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. Now, once again, these verses can be really hard to understand. You could read them at first and come away with the conclusion that wealthy people are bad. Money is bad. And that's not what it's saying. What it's really saying is be careful if you're wealthy because if much is given to you, much is expected from you. 
And the true issue here was people who were being selfish with their money, people who were loving their money more than God and loving their money more than people. And they're gaining their money through the pain of others, and they're becoming corrupted with their wealth. They're placing their trust in the wrong things. And he's referring specifically to these landowners, these rich people, which he has talked about throughout the book of James, are taking advantage of those around them. And it appears to me that these people are not believers, but they were people associated with the churches that he was writing to. And they've taken their monies off God, and in a large sense, money has become their God. So once again, he's, he's, he's writing to some specific people here. So just out of curiosity, another poll, how many of you are evil landowners who take advantage of your field servants? I saw one hand go up. I think that was uh, sarcastically, right? None of you, really? Oh, okay. Well, this is another part. We have principles we need to take out of this. And the first is this, which I believe everyone can understand, coming from a place of affluence, a country of affluence, where we are consumeristic. And everyone here, by the way, are one percenters. And when you think of rich people, you often define it as those who have more money than me. But the reality is all of you have more means than 99% of the world, just by virtue of being in this country. But it's understanding your perspective of money and where you place your trust. That's the first principle we see in verses 1 through 3, is that if you are trusting in the wrong things and you become reliant on yourself, it will ultimately fail you. He says, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail. And what this is saying is, wake up. Wake up to what's happening here. Because of the misery that is coming on you. It talks about the wealth rotting, the silver and the gold are corroding. And their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. So what he's saying is all of these things that you're putting all of your trust and assurance are actually going to testify against you at the day of judgment. Don't misplace your trust. Trust in God first and foremost. He's talking about these people who were hoarding their wealth in the last days. And they just kept accumulating it more and more. And it kind of reminded me of, I uh, remember the cartoon DuckTales? I'm revealing myself as an 80s kid here. The DuckTales, and in the opening credits, Scrooge McDuck like, jumps off of this diving board into this pile of money, and he's kind of swimming in it. And he is known as kind of, he's modeled after this Ebenezer Scrooge, right from A Christmas Tale. He loved money more than people. He was very selfish and greedy. But I remember watching that as a kid and thinking, like, that would be awesome to have that much money that I don't have to worry about anything and I just have this pile of money I could just lay in and, and just swim in it. But the reality is, if that's what you put your trust in, you'll never have enough. You'll always need more because that trust is fleeting. We read in the parable of the foolish rich person in Luke 12 about this, this farmer who had this banner year of harvest. And rather than using what he had at the moment, he decided to destroy his barns and build bigger ones so he could store all of this wealth for himself. And then he kind of kicked back and relaxed and said, I've got it made in the shade. Now I just have to eat, drink, and be merry. But Jesus talks about that situation. 
Because he said that that person was a fool because that very day his life would be commanded of him. Like he was going to die that day. And Jesus says, this is how it will be with whoever, dis- whoever stores up things for themselves but is not rich toward God. If you are given much, then you have the responsibility to use those things rather than storing it up and saying, God, look what a good job I did. I protected this money. Misplaced trust and self-reliance will ultimately fail. When you are called to be a Christ follower, you are called to give him everything. And in this situation, they were taking advantage of others to get more money to be used for themselves and their own selfish purposes. And everything that they had would testify against them on the day of judgment. They had no strong ground to stand on. We have to be careful of that same idea. Put your trust in God first. Use your resources for his kingdom and trust in him daily for his provision because Jesus could come back anytime. The last principle here is really looking at the other side of it. Those who are being taken advantage of, those those poor workers in the field, and we don't know the exact situation, but it appears that they had been working for these landowners and promised a wage, and then the wage was held from them. And the way this worked at the time is, is all of the land in Israel was, was owned by an actually pretty small concentration of landowners. It's kind of a lot like corporate America, of what you'd think today. And so everything was funneled through these people. And so there's a large amount of people who were uh, dependent on a small amount of people. And they would do, do the work, and they could just say, no, you, you left one grain of rice on the field. You didn't do your job. I'm not paying you. And you get really frivolous and technical, and they kind of had the fix-in on the whole legal system where they'd never be held accountable for anything. And what we see here is that these rich landowners were getting away with it. And they had this sense of arrogance and this being untouchable person in society, and there's many who are suffering underneath them. And what we read in verse 4 is that God saw everything. And he heard the cries of those who were being taken advantage of. And that is being heard by the Lord Almighty. Another way of saying that is the Lord of hosts or the master of armies that God could wipe out these people in a moment. And he heard the cries of those who were being oppressed. So the principle here is if you're on the other side of that and you feel like everything is unfair and stacked up against you, the reality is life is rarely fair, but God is always just. All of these things will be accounted for, and you have to be patient for him to do so as you trust in him. To those who are hurting today, be patient. God is just and all will be made well. We have to remind ourselves that the perfect justice of God is only done through the hands of God. Now, we like to define evil the same way we like to define rich, right? Those who are evil are those who have sinned more than me. Now, there's a margin of acceptable sin, and that's kind of where I'm at, but if you go one step over that, Then they're evil, and they need the full justice of God. And this is where we have to understand that this blessed uh, partnership with justice is God's mercy. God has mercy on us all. We have to pray that God would have mercy on those 
who are oppressing us as well. They will be held accountable. But the reality is we all deserve to be held accountable for our sin. God's mercy is as great as his justice. We understand that God holds that perfect balance together in his hands. And it's easy to think when you read verses like that, man, the world is so evil. I wish God would just strike people dead as soon as they did something evil. But you may not know what you're wishing for in that moment. We have all sinned and committed evil against God, and we are equally undeserving of his grace. We're equally guilty of our own sin, and only Jesus and faith in him, only Jesus has the power to transform us from condemned people to redeemed people. Now, I'm going to read for you again verse 6. This is a really important one to read as we transition to a time of communion. He is talking about these landowners, right? These rich people who are oppressing these innocent workers. He says, You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. But I believe that there is double meaning to this, right? Now, it was believed in the time of, of this uh, era that, that if you uh, did not provide for the needs of someone, it was like murdering them. If you had the means to do so and you didn't, it was like wishing death upon them. We understand this in, in our own reality, that we have sinned and fall short, that we deserve the penalty of death. Every one of our sins has condemned and murdered the innocent one who is not opposing you. The reason Jesus hung on the cross was because of the penalty for our sins. And he was innocent. He did no wrong. He was not opposing us. He said in his own words that when he came to do what he did and, and, and be our sacrifice on the cross, he was not here to judge the world at that time. He came to save the world. He came as an advocate for us all, and yet our sin put him on the cross. So thank God that he has both justice and mercy. And that's what we celebrate in a time of communion, is understanding the grace he has over our sin, and that there is hope in Jesus to forgive that sin, no matter how, quote, bad it is. His love is greater than our sin, and his grace is bigger than anyone's deficiency. There's hope in the cross of Christ, and the trust and Jesus is all that matters for your forgiveness and salvation. We can thank God and we can trust him because he's already solved humanity's greatest problem on the cross, our sin. And it came at a great cost to him. That's what we remember in a time of communion. I'm going to read out of Romans 5. Really important uh, three verses to understand what Christ gave us and how little we deserved it. It reads, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, that means we could do nothing about our sin, Christ died for the ungodly. Another way of saying ungodly is evil. We were in a predicament. We could do nothing, and we were evil. And yet, at the right time, Christ died for us. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, 
Though a good person, someone may possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What that's saying is that nobody deserved this. Nobody here was, quote, good enough or, quote, not that bad of a person that they deserved the death of Jesus. It was done out of his great and endless love for us. And we can be so focused on the evil in the world that we forget about the evil of our own lives. We forget about what Jesus truly did for us. That's why communion is a time ordained by Jesus himself to regularly remind us of his sacrifice in the midst of our ungodliness. And that's what we're about to partake in together today. And just a bit about communion here, if you're, if you're new. Uh, we're going to pass the elements in a moment. But this is something we do regularly, monthly, because Jesus commanded us to do that. And this is for anyone who professes faith in Christ. So if you're a visitor today who is a professing Christian, you're, you're welcome to join us in that. It's a time set apart to really remember what he has already done for us. So this in itself does not forgive your sins. It does not make you into a Christian. It's remembering what Jesus has already done for you. The bread and the cup are symbols to remind us of his body and his blood. And it's also a time of humility. It's a time to remember what he's done and and have this reverence and awe of who he is. That's why we take a moment to silence ourselves and prepare our hearts for this, to examine our own hearts in silence between you and the God. And so so we take this moment for you and God just to to take a moment to, to really confess any unconfessed sins to God, to ask him for forgiveness and to speak into your life and your heart in this moment. So let's take that moment of silence here together. And so, Lord, we know as we eat this bread and drink this cup that we proclaim your death until you come again. God, you are coming again. And Jesus, we are excited for that day, but in the meantime, we trust in you. We trust in your death and your resurrection and the forgiveness of our sins. We place all our faith in you as Lord and Savior. We thank you for what you've done on the cross. And God, may it guide us in all things in life. May we respond to you in joy and in worship of who you are. As we know, we did not deserve this, but you loved us enough to do it anyway. God, thank you. So Lord, I pray for all of us now as we go from here. May you just help us to trust you more. You've proven yourself over and over again, God, but just humble our hearts in a way that we can accept what you have before us, your good and your perfect will, your provisions, and ultimately your perfect justice, God. We thank you for all of those things. We pray this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.